Well, we're going to have a conversation this morning. Um, so appreciate your attentiveness and response to this sermon series on your church. Um, I, I just want to make sure you know that um, we're, we have many, many examples of great commitment around here. And uh, this series is not designed to chide you or rebuke you, really. And, of course, you know, some different points in our life we need a rebuke, so I'm not against that. Uh, it's just about, it's about pushing our, um, pushing our, uh, taking our push and turning it into a shove, and our jog and turning it into a sprint, and our good and turning it to great. Um, going to, you know, we like to use a kind of cliche, whole other level, going to another level. And um, there's, there's a lot to be done in the world. And so we're trying to make the point that the church becoming great is not a threat to the world, it's the opposite. The church becoming great makes us great for the world. We're, we're better for the world if we become great. If we keep being um, less than great, small, uh, weak, then we're not available to the world that really needs us. They need us to be healthy. They need a healthy body of Christ. And so that's what they are talking about in this series. And so we have some great examples. In fact, I have a couple of examples here with me today of people who, uh, who I've watched them personally love and, and show love to one another, to show love to others. And, uh, you know, we often speak, this is Mike and Joanne Sutton. So everybody give them a warm welcome here today. We often speak of the church as a place to be loved. And we don't want to change that. In fact, we want to double down on that. But uh, today we're going to be talking in the sermon about uh, church as a place to learn to love others. And that God has created the church as a school or a laboratory for experimenting with love so we know, so we are good at it when we go out into the world. And so uh, I want to ask you guys about how your feelings of love for others has grown as a result of your coming here and involvement here. How many years have you guys been here? 14 years, right? 17 years. 17 years. And uh, Mike, you spent your entire career as a police officer. And uh, are, there, are there some special challenges uh, that being a part of law enforcement presented for you when it comes to loving people? Is there some special challenges that that uh, created that you, in coming to church, you were able to uh, get better at that? Um, I think of a couple of things that um, happened to happened to me as a cop the first 10 years on the job. They teach you in the academy to separate yourself emotionally from some of the things you're involved with, and uh, it's probably a good thing, but you can, like all good things, you can take it too far, and, and I did. Um, I got so good at separating myself emotionally from what I saw at work, I separated myself emotionally from lots of other people too, yeah. and, and my family, and um, you know, so relationships you know, suffered because of that. Uh, the other thing that happens is you, I found myself much more comfortable just being around cops all the time because you know, they, they understood you and you didn't get all those awkward questions and uh, some of it's practical, I shouldn't go that far. You, you work nights and weekends and holidays, so all your old friends are still working Monday through Friday, nine to five, and you just don't see each other as much anymore. But then that emotional thing comes about. You just feel more comfortable around them. And uh, you put those two things together, um, you become isolated. Your world just becomes small. Um, I really stopped associating with a lot of people. I stopped going to church. You know, and it wasn't really about the church. I just didn't feel as comfortable there. And it didn't fit my schedule. And, uh, and uh, it was emotional. <laughs> and right. you learn to be non-emotional. So uh, those two things happened. And then how did, how did, how's being involved in the church and how's that helped or, or how's it changed that or transformed it in a positive way? What forces you to make your world bigger, forces you to expose yourself to other people, is forces you to um, be emotional about things. Uh, back when uh, I stopped going to church way back then, uh, part of the reason was I, I felt like, well, my, my life's all in order. I know what I'm doing. Everything's fine. Everything wasn't fine, but it felt that way at the time. And so it was easy to walk away. When I came here you know, 16 years ago, my life was a mess and I knew it. And I knew I needed something else. So, you know, you, 
I, I forced myself to come. I forced myself to be around in these uncomfortable situations. And eventually the people here modeled love and modeled the body. And um, you, start to, you start to copy that and you start to live that. Yeah. I find that that's incredibly interesting as you talk about the church being a place where you're exposed to more people. And I think the perception in the culture out there is that churches are very isolated places. Where you, you come here, you, you'll, you, you, you lose touch with the, the reality and what real people are like. Well, I'm a, I continue to meet a lot of people. That are I think we have every kind of weirdo in the world here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. everybody's here. <laughs> right. Just kidding, brother. Well, we have just a couple of you. <laughs> now, being a, 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 being a police officer, how, how did that, uh, you know, I've had uh, a mostly really good um, interactions with police officers and, and, and other officials, firemen and all that, but some not so positive. Uh, because uh, just certain things I, I observe uh, that, the, that that job can seem to do to you. And so what are some uh, impacts of, of being a police officer on your attitude and how did the church help you there? Just to touch on what you started with, yeah, this isn't unique to law enforcement. I, I know people in the fire services, I know EMTs, military people, they go through a lot of those same dynamics. It's, it's fairly common. As far as an attitude change, um, I became very cynical. Um, you know, the difference between being suspicious, you know, you, you need to be suspicious and a little distrustful. That's good to a point. But again, like the other things, you take it too far and it becomes a negative. And I was very cynical. Uh, I remember the first time walking in the door here. Um, everyone was warm and welcoming, shook my hand, smiled at me. And I thought, what are they up to? <laughs> what do they want? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's when you've gone too far. You know, I, I couldn't relate to that. Um, I just yeah. had a worldview that... Um, it wasn't that bad things sometimes happen in the world, but that's the norm. And once yeah. in a while, something good might happen, but it wasn't very often. And that's not healthy. Um, the way the church helped, again, was uh, as I forced myself initially to be around normal people, uh, I started to uh, reciprocate. And, I said that, and you know, it, it doesn't happen overnight. You can't just read a book or come to a church once. It, it take, it's taken years, it's taken 16 years. Yeah, it's a process. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a process. A if I had stayed with it from the beginning, it probably would have been a lot better, yeah. obviously. If I can stayed it's, involved in a church right from the start. It's not just like going to, going to a, a how to love people class and seven weeks later you're... you're it's like going people. to a doctor after you've abused your health for 20 years and expecting <laughs> to fix you that day. You know, it's not going to happen. And uh, let's kind of move into your personal life a little bit more uh, beyond your career. So, were there any special love challenges in your life? Uh, people that, you know, when the pastor or whoever's teaching would talk about someone's difficult to forgive and all that, they, they their face would just come up to you, you know? Uh, is there any, were there any things like that, special love challenges that the messages and the, the people and, and all those things helped you with? The first face that comes to mind um, is my father. Uh, I grew up with an alcoholic father who was uh, sometimes abusive, uh, so I had, you know, my, my entire first 18 years exposed to that. You know, as a young adult, um, had a lot of anger and bitterness towards him, unforgiveness. Yeah. And it didn't help that at the time, my, my formula for forgiveness was, uh, and I think a lot of people think this way, uh, that person has to admit what he did was wrong and come to you and apologize and ask for forgiveness, and then you just grant it, and magically it's all better. But... Um, I never learned at other churches or books I had read the right formula for forgiveness till I came here. I really credit Bethany with that solely, uh, yourself and, and all the other people here. That Forgiveness is something you, you do for yourself. And that other person, um, he may never apologize or admit what he did wrong. In my father's case, he didn't remember a lot of what he did wrong. And, or they could die before you ever have that process. So uh, you have to forgive for yourself, yeah, I, I, and, and, and I learned that. And something else you said to me that helped me learn that was, uh, and I only I heard for the first time from you a long time ago, uh, hurting people hurt people. And that really helped me to humanize him uh, in a way I hadn't before to, to be able to forgive him. That's awesome. 
uh, I, I hope, uh, I want to put in a little plug for, for giving forward in a couple of weeks. Uh, and I, I really hope you will all sign up, not only to come be in the morning service, but be in that afternoon session uh, uh, when he, he's going to talk about the protocols of forgiveness. And now, uh, even if you don't feel you need it, and maybe you don't, and maybe you don't need it, you've worked through those things in your life, or you just never had that issue, somebody you care about does have an issue with forgiveness and working through hurts and pain. And you need to go to that class for them. Go and learn. So I just really want to encourage you to go sign up today. Joanne, let me turn to you um, and ask you about, in general, how turning to the church is a play, has become a place for you to learn and, and grow even better at this competency of love and forgiveness. Um. Coming to Bethany 17 years ago uh, was a mess. My marriage, my family were a mess. And I just um, learned by coming here to bring your pain and your struggles to the altar. Thank you, Jay, whoever picked out that last song. It was perfect because, you know, the Father was waiting for me here at the altar to help me and love me and um, become part of this body, gave me strength and gave me a place to come and get prayer. I think I ran, I wore a hole in the carpet coming forward for prayer those first months. Um, there was the great teaching of the word that I would learn um, how to deal with what was going on in my life. Um, encouragement to get in the word every day, to read the word every day. Um, the week of prayer, it was very powerful. I've never missed one since because I just saw miracles come out of that. It was awesome. And a place to serve. Um, I'll never forget putting part of that gym together was part of my healing. <laughs> um, serving other people and serving the church takes your focus off yourself and makes you um, focus on others and other struggles. And that, that's powerful, Joanne. And, and you, you, you guys have been very honest about, you both made allusion to your, your marriage and how uh, it, was, uh, it was in bad need of healing when you came. Uh, talk to us, Joanne, a little bit about that, how God used the church and uh, the people in the church, the messages, all of it to help strengthen your marriage. Um, again, people praying for me. Uh, I don't know how many of you remember Kitty Tays, but she just wrapped me in her arms, didn't even know my story, and just would hug me every time she saw me. She just... She could see the pain in me, and she would just love on me. So that was a big way of, um, of helping. God brought me through many studies, many books that I read, search, search for significance. I learned to get my significance from God and not people or my husband, um, which made me stronger. Um, Beauty for Ashes, all these studies that God worked on me um, during that time of struggle were encouraged here. And... Um, made me into the person that I needed to be for my marriage. She made, you know, me a whole healthy person. That's what I needed to do for my marriage. You, you kind of already answered the last question I was going to ask about ministry involvement. So I kind of want to reword it a little bit since you already, already said that was a big part of helping you to, to grow. It's the opportunity to serve, and I don't think a lot of people realize that, that the opportunity to serve at a church uh, puts them in a, a school of learning to love, especially if you're fortunate enough to be have people around you that can give you counsel as you do it. Uh, but uh, some people also perceive, I, I get this perception sometimes with people, is that I have to make a choice between serving uh, through the church or my marriage and family. I have to make a choice. I can't do both. But has serving the church... Uh, and this is a yes or no question, which interviewers are not supposed to do. You're not supposed to ask yes or no questions. Uh, so, so bail me out and uh, extra, extrapolate a little bit. Uh, has has getting involved in serving, and because I know you guys work on your marriage, you, I, you you go off, you you go places, you take motorcycle rides to wherever, and and you, I know you guys spend a lot of time together. You don't burn out at the church. Uh, at the expense of your marriage. I know you don't do that, and I'm glad you don't. But has it hurt your marriage to be involved in ministry? No, <laughs> absolutely not. 
it's, um, it was kind of an answer to prayer when I came here that I wanted Mike to become more involved in the church and we could serve together. So that was an answer to prayer, and it's just brought us closer together and stronger and um, given us a purpose. That's cool. Just give me a little bit more on that. How has it brought you closer together? (laughs) Um, Giving us a common goal. We have a love for people. Um, We have a love and a caring for people that are struggling in their marriages or with their kids because we've been through it. Um, I started the post-abortive ministry um, at the church because I have a love for people that have gone through that. So it's just God can use your pain to help others, and that is a really healing process. You did a sermon once on being on the front line um, when we started serving at at Katrina, um, that God is near to the brokenhearted. So if you're serving the brokenhearted, you're near to God, and you feel his love. And Sure. So um, even with the negative impact my job had on me, I I think I was a good cop. Mm -hmm. I had a sense of duty. I always did the right thing. And you, you can serve others just out of a sense of duty, like a legalistic way. But it's so different when you serve out of, out of love. Yeah. And, and that's what I learned was to switch over to that. I mean, the first time I went down to Katrina, I had been in this church a few years, and I, I would come a long way, I think, at that point. But I went out of a sense of duty. I said, you know, they want people to go down there and work. I'll go down there and work. I wasn't doing I didn't think I would get anything out of it, to be honest. I was just doing it out of a sense of duty, which I had done for years in my job. But I got, I got so much out of it in return. It was really a teaching experience. And... Um, once you do it, you'll see that. You benefit more, you get more back than, than you ever give. And how can that not be good for any relationship? Amen. That's good. Thank you so much. So appreciate that. Thank you. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, Go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. If he will not listen to you, take one or two others with you so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. You know, we're not going to take the time today to really take this passage apart. But I want, I want to point out to you something very important that this passage, uh, there's an underlying message here in this passage uh, besides how to resolve conflict uh, or how to, how to resolve when someone sins against you. I don't want to say resolve conflict because it's more than that. First of all, the welcoming and serving aspect of a church is more than customer service. Uh, it's what, what drives us here is that we're obsessed with convincing you and convincing one another that God loves us unconditionally, and that's a good thing. So we don't want to abandon what some may view as just good customer service. But the graduate level of, an, and I'm talking about greeting and having programs for you and having the music be as good as possible, trying to make services interesting and all of that, kind of what you might consider a consumer um, uh, dimension of the church. But the graduate level of understanding of your church is that it is a place where you emotionally grow up and learn to love other human beings. That's the graduate level understanding of the church. It's God's laboratory for learning to resolve conflict. Get along with people of, of different opposite personalities than yourself, different cultures, different races, Varieties of strengths and weaknesses. Matthew 18 illuminates a whole relationship with other church members that goes way beyond checking the boxes of customer of a customer satisfaction survey. You know, was I greeted warmly? Check. Was I directed clearly? Check. Was the ministry, uh, children's ministry, welcome, welcoming, safe, and exciting? Check. Was the music uplifting? Check. Was the sermon relevant? Check. Am I made to feel my gifts are appreciated? Check. Well, there's no box for did I learn to resolve conflict and get along with others around me and have shared values. There's no box for that. Now, I'm not recommending, now please hear me today, because in young in my, early in my ministry, I used to use this passage to try to teach all conflict resolution. 
this passage, I am convinced now, is not a primary passage for dealing with all offenses. This passage is talking about serious stuff. Sin. Someone sins against you. Stuff is serious as clergy molesting children. Now, I know that may seem strange to you that this passage would apply to that, but think of Paul's audience. Paul's audience, and I, I know this is a, kind of a side trail. I don't want to get you off here. Paul's audience in the Greco-Roman world, pederasty, which was sex between uh, men and boys, was common, and it was legal. So the church had to deal with some very heavy issues, just as the church does sometimes today. So when, when Jesus was saying sin against, he, he was talking about some serious stuff. And, and there's less serious sins, like uh, which, are dam which, is, which is common, such as damaging someone's reputation with slanders and lies. So these are the kinds of things that are talked about not every time you uh, are just offended at somebody about something. You don't need to hold court every time someone gets offended. There's other ways and there's other passages of Scripture for resolving the garden variety of insults and offenses that we all have sometimes, okay? These important conversations for another time, but runs very past, that runs past a very important presupposition that Jesus is making here. I want us to stop. I want us to back up from everything the passage is teaching. And I want to back up to that important presupposition that Jesus assumes. He assumes that when he talks about your church, he assumes that his audience is deeply connected with a group of people called their church. He assumes you're very deeply connected. Today, most people in America only associate Jesus with a personal relationship with God. And they totally miss the emphasis on a collective and co corporate relationship. Did you hear what I just said? I want you to understand it. Most people today in the Western world only associate believing in Jesus with a personal relationship with Jesus and not a corporate relationship with Jesus that they have with their church. Jesus assumes that we believe a church is the place where we learn to love people who are not only different from us, but actually have the potential of committing a serious sin against us. Jesus assumes that we believe the church is a place to live out our values with other people and resolve our differences. Now our text illuminates a relationship with the church that's far beyond what most people understand. To understand the relevance of the church, it might be helpful to go back to around the, the fifth century when a man named Benedict faced a culture that was becoming increasingly and not only intolerant of Christians, but a culture that was had gotten so corrupted and so bad that in around in and around Rome, in particular, he found it very difficult to raise up Christians anymore because the culture was so powerful and so strong. So he went away. He went away for like a year and lived in a cave. Eventually, he came out of the cave and he developed 14 communities, 14 communities around Europe that would be instrumental in actually saving Christianity for, for, the, uh, for the Western world as these communities of people who learn to get along with one another, serve one another, develop biblical uh, standards and values, and they, they actually save the Christian faith, which the Christian faith, I believe, was um, instrumental in major developments in our, in our culture. And, and I want to I just quote from a book. Someone's written a book about it called The Benedict, the Benedict Option. And I want to quote Ron Dreher's book, and I'm going to put it on this. It's quite a lot of words and in so many words, I didn't want you to miss that. This is a powerful, I think, a very powerful uh, passage in the book called The Benedict Option. And I want to put them up on the screen so you can read it with me, and I think you'll be able to absorb it a little better. 
Sociologist Philip Reif, the great interpreter of Freud, described the shift in Western consciousness like this. Religious man was born to be saved. Psychological man is born to be pleased. The 1960s were the decade in which psychological man came fully into his own. In that decade, the freedom of the individual to fulfill his own desires became our culture load, cultural lodestar. And the rapid falling away of American morality from its Christian ideal began as a result. Despite a conservative backlash in the 1980s, psychological man won decisively and now owns the culture, including most churches. As surely as the Ostrogoths, Visigoths, Vandals, and other conquering peoples own the remains of Western Roman Europe. Remember, the reason, the reason Europe lost its Christian identity was they were invaded by the Goths and the Vandals and the Vikings. Rome was sacked in uh, something like 1447, and that, that began the degeneration that caused Benedict, Benedict to react and put more emphasis on the local community called the church. It goes on to say, the church, a community that authoritatively teaches and disciples its members, cannot withstand a revolution in which each member becomes, in effect, his own pope, churches, Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox, that are nothing more than a loosely bound assembly of individuals committed to finding their own truth and are no longer the church in any meaningful sense, because there is no shared belief. Jesus was talking about a community that had shared beliefs, shared values, getting close to others in your church, getting along with others in your church, and resolving interpersonal conflict around shared values is a consistent theme in the New Testament. I'm talking about, I'm talking about this view of just having a personal Savior, Jesus, and this view of having a healthy, sometimes tumultuous, sometimes up and down relationship with a group of people called the church. Let me give you a few passages of Scripture that make the point that this is a biblical theme. John 17, 22. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. He's talking to his disciples. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know. Now notice he's, He's juxtaposing this group he's talking to, to the world. It's not, it's not like an us against them thing. It's just an us and them. It's not us against them. We're not against the world, but it's us and them. May the world be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as, I, even as you have loved me. It's out of love for the world that Jesus creates this, the church. Now go to Romans chapter 15. I want to reiterate the same thing. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Jesus Christ, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not enforcing his values on the world. He's not trying to make the world do this. He's not trying to make everybody in the community do this. We're not trying to impose our values on them, we're trying to impose our values on ourselves. Amen? Ephesians 4, 2, 3 says a similar thing. It says, and mark that you do walk worthy of the calling you've received. This with humility and discipline, not in fits and starts, and this is the Message Bible, but steadily pouring yourselves out for each other in acts of love, alert Noticing differences and quick at mending fences. We know there are aspects of this that we do in the community and we do at work and we do in our civic organizations that we're a part of, but he's primarily addressing our relationships with one another at our church. Why it's often, you know, I don't always grasp the purpose of the church as a place to teach me how to love other people. I don't, I really don't. I, I don't always regard it as a place that God's going to use to help me get rid of my biases and my prejudices. I don't always view the church as a place that's going to help me uh, with the art of yielding to others or to develop the skill of appreciating others. I, I don't always view the church as a place to help me learn to work together in a, in a coaching environment rather than a punishment-reward environment. 
I, I don't often get this. Uh, why is it I find it most difficult to actualize the famous sermon or the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi where he said, O oh, divine master, grant that I may not so much to be consoled, seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that you receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is, it is in dying that we're born to eternal life. You know what I do sometimes? I'm embarrassed to tell you, but I whine about how difficult people are in the church. I whine about how difficult they are to love, how difficult they are to lead. And, and sometimes I even say, I've, I've said this, people are crazy. And I'm not referring to people out in the world when I say that. I'm referring to you. You know why I do that? Well, I do that because I perceive myself as very patient and loving. And if I'm not feeling loving, it's because it's somebody else's fault. Somebody else was a jerk. If God were to bluntly say to me, you know, I've put you in the church to teach you how to be unselfish, forgiving, patient, submissive to others, less arrogant, less self-absorbed, more able to work as a team, more able to stay joyful when you don't get your way, and in general develop better interpersonal skills, I would say, God, I really don't need that training because I've already got that down. I'm good at that. So, so thanks, but no thanks. I really don't need to go to the School of Interpersonal Relationships. I need to develop as a communicator, God. I need to be a better communicator. I need to, be, I need to better, be a better administrator, God. I need the church to help me to be a better delegator. I need to get better at casting vision. I need to get better at raising money. You know that I need to get better at that. I need to get better at connecting with movers and shakers in the community. I need to develop my decision-making skills. Yes, Lord, I really need to get better at leadership. God, I don't need the Global Leadership Summit. I need the Global Loving I don't I need the Global Leadership Summit. I don't need the Global Dif Loving Difficult People Summit. I don't really need that. I need I just need to be a bigger, better, better leader. God, you know? God says, "No, you need to be more patient and more loving and more kind and more accepting and more patient." and more joyful when people don't do what you want them to do. That's why I put you in the church. This turns my whole idea of church up on its head. Because I thought I came here because you were perfect. I, th I thought God wanted to put me in this place because this is the one place that nobody would ever cross me. Nobody would ever disappoint me. Nobody would ever discourage me. And nobody would ever let me down. And nobody would ever make life tedious for me. I thought that's why God put me here. But I, when I read the scripture, I find that God didn't put me here to, to hang out with perfect people. God hang, put me in this building and in this place to, to force me to hang out with imperfect people and love them as Christ loved them. That was not a resounding applause. We naturally miss the church being a school of love because, I give you, I'm going to give you three reasons, because we have unrealistic high expectations of people at the church. You have unrealistic high expectations of how godly and sweet everybody is going to be here. Secondly, Christians are notorious for dishonest compliments and conflict avoidance. We are notorious for it. In fact, professional surveyors hate running surveys at churches because Christians cannot be honest, especially if they're asked to say that they don't like something. Because in the Christian context, it is not sweet or loving to say you don't like something. But if we look at Scripture, this habit we have of false affirmation, you know, to tell the person, Oh, that song, your singing was so, such a blessing. And then we get in the car and said, that person sounded like two cats on a clothesline. <laughs> but that wouldn't be very Christian to tell them they shouldn't be singing. <laughs> 
But if we leave the scripture, we, we know this habit of false affirmation and conflict avoidance, it's not in the scripture. In fact, the gift identification by other people in the scripture was the feedback you got from other people. Now, now I don't have time to expand on that, but but I'm going to tell you in Romans chapter 12, there's seven spiritual gifts mentioned in Romans chapter 12, seven. And Paul, writing Romans 12, he tells people, you who teach, teach. You're good at teaching. You're good at giving mercy, show mercy. You're good at being a prophet, be a prophet. You know what that meant? That meant that the church was telling people there are six things you're not very good at. So do the thing you're good at. They, they discovered their gifts in the New Testament, not by taking some little gift test on a piece of paper. They discovered their spiritual gifts by feedback. That's how they discovered their gifts. You want to be a part of a church like that? <laughs> Did I hear amen back there? If you don't think that there was conflict in the early church, have you ever heard of Ananias and Sapphira? Two people that dropped dead of a heart attack when the elders in front of everybody said, you, you lied about how much you gave in the offering. And they, husband and wife both dropped dead of a heart attack, which some of you would drop dead of a heart attack if I did that to you. Have you, you ever follow the story of Mark, Paul, and Barnabas getting ready to go on a, a missionary trip and, the, and, and Silas, and they're bringing John Mark, and Paul looked at them and said, no way you're bringing John Mark on this missionary. Now, they're, they're going to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. They're going, to, they're going to tell people how much God loves them. And Paul says, no way John Mark is coming on this missions trip because the last time we went on a trip, he flaked out and didn't finish the trip, and I'm not taking the big baby with us again. And you know what? The four guys... Two went one way, two went the other, preaching the gospel, telling the world how much God loved them. And some Christians today would go, that wasn't very Christian. How could they possibly go on preaching the gospel when they had a big stinking fight? They didn't have this wimpy, wussy idea of Christianity that we have developed in the 21st century. It was robust. It was honest. There was, there was candor that was a part of the relationship with God. And, but that doesn't mean they ended their, their relationship with bitterness. In fact, if you read in the New Testament, Paul in a letter says, bring John Mark. I want to see him again. He is beneficial for me in the gospel. They knew how to get through personal crisis and they knew how to get through a fight because they didn't see the church as just a place to be loved they saw the church as a place to teach them how to love there's so many of uh, simon peter you know simon peter's over galatia and the the big flake he was he would he would act like he really really, really was friends of the Gentiles. I mean, he was, he, was a, he was a globalist Christian. He was so progressive when he was with the Gentiles. This Jewish man was accepting the Gentiles, but then when the Jewish friends would come around, he wouldn't talk to the Gentiles. And Apostle Paul, you know, Apostle Paul rides into town one day and he sees this. And he wrote... He didn't keep it a big secret. He wrote a letter that everybody could read. It was like sending out a text. It was like sending out a text message. He said, I confronted Peter to his face. I set him straight. That's why the church was so powerful. The church was so powerful because they were not locked into all this dishonesty and false affirmation that the church has to go through today. They were grown up. How many of you'd like to grow up? How would you like to live in a grown-up church? Again, there's not a resounding applause. <laughs> the third reason is we're inclined to think that conflicts at church means the church isn't working. Sometimes it means we're working perfectly fine. Rick Warren says the tunnel of conflict is the pathway to intimacy. The tunnel of conflict is the password. You think you love someone, 
you will really love them if you will work through a conflict with them. If you, will, if you will be tough enough and strong enough and love them enough to get from one side of a conflict to the other, then you will really love them and you will really know them and you will really trust them. And you know you have a friend who will work through conflict with you and work through difficulty with you. You know it. I look around this room and I see people that we've done that together. I see, I see marriages that you've done that together and your marriage is better. Your life is better because sometimes you just don't tell the truth till you get really angry. You just don't. You just don't tell the truth till you're really ticked. And then you start telling the truth. And then you start to grow because we, we grow. You, you can't grow without truth. Now, you, now, I know the Bible says speak the truth in love, but sometimes you've got to say it in not love until you get loving. And then <laughs> that's what you're working toward, right? The foundation. Now, now don't, don't, don't freak out on me today. We're not going to start uh, uh, telling people off. And we're not going to get brutal around here. Don't worry. This is a process. The but here, here's the truth. And, and, and here's the truth. The foundation of all Christian loving. Now you, you've, I'll, I'll bet some of you have never heard this before in your life. So this, this is like fresh new material. You only hear it here. The foundation. And I, I never thought of this before until I started working in the series. And I really believe. I, I, I may be wrong, guys. I speak. You get to judge. That's a cool thing about the church. I'm not, this, I'm not this dictator up here that if you don't like something I say, it's going to crush me. No, I am a, a servant. And I share this insight, and you judge whether you think it's from God or not. But here it is. The foundation of all Christian loving is loving other Christians. That of God... Now, for those of you who didn't clap, let me read you the scripture where I got this. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Now, I read that verse to you because I wanted to show you that he's identifying a group of people who are called the children of God. And I know in a large sense, everybody in the world is a child of God. I understand that. But there's a sense in which those of us who have put our faith in Christ and we have come and said, God, I want to be your child, that we are the child of God. He said, the reason the world does not know us. See, that here, we again, here we go again. That It's not them versus us, but it is them and us. The world and those who have accepted and believe in, you don't have to believe in it. If you're here today, you don't have to believe in it. We're not mad at you and offended at you if you don't believe in Christianity. If you're some other persuasion, you believe there's some other way, that's fine. We have decided and we have confirmed in our hearts that Christ is the way and the Christian gospel is the way to live. So the Christian gospel says the world and the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him, the, the John the writer said. Now look about chapter 4, verse 17. We're skipping down. In this way, love is made complete among us. Love is made complete. We're developed in us. So that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, now listen to this, this is very important. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother. Now, why would you ever hate another church member? Huh? Why? Why would you ever hate somebody who's sitting behind you or beside you or in front of you or in the back and, or up on the front Why, or the guy on the stage? Why would you ever hate them? Well, they must have done something to make you unhappy. <laughs> they must have displeased you. They must be a sort of person that just turns you off tight. It says, if you hate them, if you hate them, are, are you getting that? 
if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's saying it must be possible to try to love God and hate another church member, another Christian. He is a liar, he says, though. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has not seen cannot love God whom he has not seen or has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Anytime God tells me I have to do something, it means that there are many, many times I will not want to do it. <laughs> right? Anytime he says, you have to do it, he doesn't, do, he doesn't have to say, you have to eat lunch. He doesn't have to tell me that. You know, you have to sleep. No, I like to sleep, so he doesn't have to tell me that. The, the system that God's created is absolute genius. C.S. Lewis said, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable in others because Christ has forgiven the inexcusable in us. You can try to learn this skill at work, at school, your civic organizations, but wouldn't it be best to be good at it before you get to those organizations? Have you noticed the culture is not very good right now at loving? Have you noticed they're not very good at civil discourse? Have you observed? Have you taken your head out of the sand lately and realized that they do not know how to love and get along? Have you noticed? Good news. The church is more relevant, more, more relevant than we've ever been as a place where civility can be relearned. It's a place where might does not make right, where we can redefine the art of doing life together. God didn't ordain the church to be a laboratory of love so we could hyper-focus on ourselves and love the world less, but so we could get over ourselves and love the world more. Amen? Let me say that again. The God did not ordain the church as a laboratory of love so we could hyper-focus on ourselves to, to love the world less, but God did it so we would get over ourselves and love the world more. See, when the church gets done with you, you're supposed to be humble. <laughs> when the church gets done with me, I'm supposed to be a humbling experience in a good way. Mark 16, 15 says, go into all the world, preach the gospel. This isn't about not loving the world. The church is a place where the disciples of Jesus lived and loved together. It's okay that the church, it's, it's okay that the church is like Dunkin' Donuts and Starbucks and Cumberland Farms where you where you get up in the morning, you go get your spiritual caffeine for the day. But our product is not satisfied smiles. Our product is disciples. The church's product that needs to be displayed to the world is not satisfied customers. But disciples who the people of the world will mistake for Jesus. You can create a stronger movement with 12 disciples than with 1,200 consumers, Alan Hurst said. Sometimes we're like the Scottish sign maker that I'm going to show you on the screen right now. Can you see that? It's kind of dark. Yeah. Sign maker, best prices in Scotland. Now, would you buy a sign from that sign maker? The church is supposed to be producing disciples. People who don't look like that sign, but they look like Jesus. Amen? We set the bar of our fellowship and life together so low that we sometimes don't even pretend we're trying to produce the most functional group of people who produce the healthiest, safest, and most enjoyable environment ever to raise kids, to interact with other people, and truly be the stunning, beautiful body of Christ. What if 500 people got it, what I'm preaching today? What if 1,000 people got it here at 15 Cape Road? What if 1,500 people? What if 2,000 started determining to make the purpose of the relationship, to love deeply? What if, what if that many people stopped changing churches every two years for no good reason? 
Stop trying to constantly separate outreach from inreach and who showed the world we took seriously the words of Jesus. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me. That's how Jesus wants to evangelize the world, that you be brought, you in this room be brought to complete unity to let the world know that Christ sent his son or God sent his son Jesus and have loved me even as I have loved them. I know a lot of pastors and their wives I know what would happen. A lot of pastors and their wives would recover, would recover from burnout. A lot of pastors' kids would recover from cynicism. And a lot of lost sheep would return to the fold because they would hear, it's safe here, it's good here, it's honest here, but it's loving. And we've combined the two of truth and love. But don't do this for the pastor and his wife or their family or even the wandering sheep. Do it because you love Jesus. I said, do it because you love Jesus. I'm going to assume today that you love God. But according to John 4, God's baseline measure is not only how much I love other Christians, but how much I love the Christian who has wounded me most deeply and annoyed me most seriously or frustrated me the most. So today, I want to give a very special, very special appeal to you. I want to invite you to join me on a journey today on the heart of learning to love the very brother or sister that's given you the greatest reason to hate them and dislike them. Will you take that step? Now, do not go visit them. Do not go tell them that you've been called to love them even though you hate them. Do not communicate that to them. This is between you and God. Get your heart straightened out before you talk to them. But, but it, let God take you on a journey of beginning to love the people that are around you, closest to you. Begin on a journey of intimacy with them. And remember, this is how I show God. This is how I show God that I really love Him. Amen? Father, in the name of Jesus, as we enter this moment of response, I pray that you will call your people to yourself. And I know many listening to my sound of my voice don't need to pray about this. They need to pray about something else. There's a problem in their life. There's a situation in their life. We're here to minister and love them, God. It's not our place to be judgmental. It's not our place to be critical. It's not our place to make it harder for other people. It's our place to make it easier. So today, I invite your people to the altar, to seek your face and be drawn together in love. In Jesus' name. It's response time at Bethany, so I hope you will enter into communion that's available for you today. Come receive communion. Come and be prayed for, for any, anything in your life that you need prayer for today. God bless you and enjoy this day and connect with people, love people, not just the people that you are frustrated with, but just the people around you, whoever God brings in your path today. Invite them to lunch. Be a part of their life. Find out what they need and find out how you can meet their need and become the big, wonderful, awesome, beautiful body of Christ. Amen. You have been listening to the Bethany Community Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us online at bccma.org. Thank you and God bless.